Welcome to the God's Peculiar People podcast, where we learn about the lives and characteristics of God's people. Recently, I was looking for some more lesser-known missionaries to talk about, and I happened across a file on my computer for an old book about missionary stories. And this book has a variety of short biographies about uh, quite a few missionaries. Um, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, uh, people that I plan to talk about in the future, but want to do uh, much longer episodes on. I came across a name that I wasn't completely familiar with, uh, Alexander M. McKay. I believe his middle name was Murdoch, Alexander Murdoch. But I came across his name, and I hadn't really heard about him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the section of that book that talks about him. Uh, the book is in the public domain. And so I'm going to take that section of the book and just read about Alexander M. McKay so that we can both learn a little bit more about him. Greek and Roman. Arab, Turk, and Christian pioneer. At various times, and actuated by different purposes, have wended their ways into the unknown land of the Dark Continent. And Africa, for ages, has been the scene of thrilling adventure, perilous labor, and sublime life sacrifice. Livingston, Gordon, Stanley, Hannington, and others are numbered among the world's heroes, and conspicuous upon this roll of noble men must now be written the name of Alexander M. McKay. Born October 13, 1849, in the little village of Rhine, Aberdeen County, Scotland, in his father's home, the Free Church Manse, Mr. McKay was at once blessed with a godly upbringing in the midst of intellectual surroundings. Mr. McKay's father was a man of great literary ability, and for 14 years carefully carried on the daily instruction of his boy. At three years of age, Alexander McKay read the New Testament with ease, and at seven his textbooks were Milton's Paradise Lost, Russell's History of Modern Europe, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and Robertson's History of the Discovery of America. He was his father's constant companion in his walks, and stories are now told of the villagers wondering at seeing the boy often stop to look for something in the road, while from the point of fact he was watching his father's stick trace the supposed course of the Zambezi River. Letters were frequently received at the manse from Hugh Miller, Sir Roderick Murchison, and other eminent scholars, all of which were read and talked about in the family circle, and in these ways the boy's mind rapidly developed. At ten years of age he had great skill in map-making, and wonderful dexterity in typesetting, and very accurate were the proof sheets turned out from his little printing press. In 1864 he entered the grammar school at Aberdeen, and here he worked well. He seldom joined the excursions of the young people, but preferred to become initiated in art photography, or to watch the workmen in the great shipyards. And thus, from different sources, practical knowledge of many things were by him early acquired. In 1865 McKay sustained a great loss in the death of his mother whose parting injunction to search the scriptures became a duty always continued. In the fall of 1867, McKay entered the Free Church Training School of Teachers in Edinburgh, and there he won the admiration of pupils and teachers by his scholarly ability for two years, and then entered the Edinburgh University for a three-year course in classics, applied mechanics, higher mathematics, and natural philosophy followed by a year's study of surveying and fortification with Lieutenant Mackey, Professor of Engineering. For two years, 1870-1872, while Secretary of the Engineering Society and tutor each morning at George Watson College, Mackey daily took the tram car to Leith and spent his afternoon in model-making and in turning, fitting, and erecting machinery in the engineering work at Mr. 
Miller, and Hubert. His evenings were employed in attending lectures on chemistry and geology at the School of Arts and other places. Sundays he gave to regular attendance at religious services and to teaching in Dr. Guthrie's original ragged school. In November 1873, Mackey went to Germany to study the language, and at once secured a good position as draftsman in the Berlin Union's Engineering Company. While thus employed, he spent his evenings in translating Libsyn's Differential and Integral Calculus, and in inventing an agricultural machine which obtained the first prize at the exhibition of steam engines held at Braslau. The directors of the company, recognizing Mackey's ability, soon made him chief of the locomotive department. In May 1874, Mackey became a boarding member in the home of Herr Hofprediger Bauer, one of the ministers at the cathedral, and one of the chaplains. And in this cultured and pious home, Mackey derived many advantages, and met once a week at, at the Bible readings, the elite of the Christian Society of Berlin, among whom was Grafen von Arnim, sister of Prince Bismarck, and Gaff and Grafen Golfstein, who gave great interest to Mackey's later labors. At this time, Herr Bauer was actively engaged in German translation of the life of Bishop Patterson, and this work, together with the professor's sympathy, proved a stimulus to the decision Mackey had already made to devote his life to missionary work. This decision having been arrived at after reading his sister's account of Dr. Burns Thompson's urgent appeal to young men to go to Madagascar. With Mackey to decide was to act. But, as he could not at once enter the field as clergy or doctor, he determined to do so as an engineering missionary, a most practical and far-sighted determination. And blessed with his father's sanctions, he offered his services to the London Missionary Society, but was answered that Madagascar was not yet ripe for his assistance. At this time, Mackey received an offer of partnership in a large engineering firm in Moscow, which, without hesitation, he refused, believing an opening for him in mission work would soon be found. In 1875, the Daily Telegraph published Stanley's famous letter, challenging Christendom to send missionaries to Uganda, and the Church Missionary Society gladly accepted Mackey's offer of service in their future mission to the Victoria Nyanza. Early in March, Mackey returned to England, and in the development of plans, the Church Missionary Society determined to combine the industrial with the religious element, and sanctioned the purchase of a light cedar boat for navigation and also appropriated £300 for a portable engine and boiler to be fitted into a wooden boat to be built by the missionaries on the Nyanza. Many weary days Mackey gave to finding, in London, an engineer who could build an engine on the principle of welling rings, each light enough to be transported by two men. But finally, an engine after his own design was built, and tools of all kinds were ready for the enterprise. And on the 27th of April, 1876, in a company of eight, Mackey left England in the Peshawar, and arrived at Zanzibar, May 29th. To facilitate the journey to the Great Lake, the mission party tended to sail up the Wama River. And on the 12th of June, Mackey and Lieutenant Smith started in the Daisy on a voyage of exploration. But after many days of hardship, they found both the Wama and Kingani Rivers unnavigable, and were obliged to proceed inland on foot. At Ugogo, in November, Mackey, who had charge of the third section of the caravan, was taken seriously ill, and was obliged to return to the coast, where he was instructed by the Church Missionary Society to delay starting for the interior until June 1877. He employed the intervening time in sending a relief caravan to his brethren on the lake and in cutting a good road to Mpwape, 230 miles inland. March 1878, Mackey heard of the murder of Lieutenant Smith and Mr. O'Neill, who had reached the lake months before, 
and hurried with all speed to the scene of the disaster, the island of Ukerewa, hoping by friendly intervention to prevent further bloodshed. June 13th he arrived at Kege, and had his first glimpse of the great lake. With joy he realized that the worst part of his journey was over. Piled together in a hut, McKay found much of the valuable property conveyed to this point by the first sections of the expedition, and left in charge of the locals. Heaps together lay boiler shells and books, papers and piston rods, steam pipes and stationery, printers' types, saws and garden seed, tins of bacon and bags of clothes, portable forges, and boiler fittings, here a cylinder, there a sole plate. Ten days' hard work from dawn to dusk, and Mackay wrote, the engines for our steamer stand complete to the last screw, the boilers ready to be riveted, tools and types have separate boxes, and rust and dust are thrown out of doors. It seems a miracle that I find almost everything complete, even to his smallest belongings, after a tedious journey of 700 miles. The Daisy, rebuilt by O'Neill, but now greatly damaged, employed McKay's attention, and setting up his rotor grindstone to the wonderment of the locals, he patched the sides and caulked the seams, and made the boat again seaworthy. After his great labors in repair, McKay, in spite of danger to himself, visited Ukiriwa, and with tactful courage held a friendly visit with King Lakongi. After this visit, McKay was a victim of dysteria, but at length, followed by Mr. Wilson and favored with a good breeze, he sailed in the daisy for Uganda. Four days of fine sailing, and then they were wrecked, and eight weeks of hard labor were given to making a new boat out of the daisy. McKay finally reached Rubaga, the capital of Uganda, November 6th. A friendly interview was at once held with King Metza, who had told Stanley to send the white men, and for a time affairs at court went smoothly. Matessa and his subjects were much interested by accounts of railways, electricity, and astronomy. McKay gained great influence by his mechanical skill, which caused wonder and admiration. Matessa appeared very anxious to hear more about the Christian religion to which Stanley had introduced him, and every Sunday religious services were held at court. From the first, the Arabs, who centered in Rubaga, were jealous of McKay, fearing his influence would overthrow the slave trade, which brought them here as elsewhere in Africa. They used all means to turn Matessa against the white man, the most potent of which were the rich presents, including firearms, presented to the king. The Arabs were no more formidable enemies to Mackay than were the Roman Catholic missionaries, who came soon after his arrival, confusing Matessa with their claims to the true religion, and insinuating a cruel persecution against the Protestants. In April 1880, Mackay, finding his store of goods nearly exhausted by the thieving of Matessa's chiefs, went to Uiu for supplies, and during this trip, and barely escaped being murdered by the natives. At this time, Matessa turned entirely away from the teaching which Mackay and his friends had labored for two years to inculcate. Two years of labor, poverty, danger, and oftentimes threatened starvation. Mackay kept his comrades alive by the sale of articles made by himself in his workshop. Besides teaching his pupils reading, writing, and arithmetic, Mackay gave them daily lessons in building and designing. He built a house for the mission party, which was a source of wonder to all, and caused Matessa to send instruction for the natives in wood and iron, and when Mackay asked a piece of ground to build huts on, he at once gave him twenty acres. To the natives, Mackay's most wonderful achievement was a cart painted red and blue and drawn by oxen. From time to time, McKay's great work was supplemented by co-laborers sent by the Church Missionary Society, and in March 1881, his heart was delighted by the baptism of five converts by Mr. O'Flaherty. Early in 1883, the Rev. E.C. Gordon and Mr. Wise joined McKay. In May of the same year, the Rev. R.P. Ash arrived, 
and the prospects of the mission were most encouraging until October 1884, when Mtesa died. The king's son, Mwanga, succeeded to the throne a youth with all his father's vices and none of his virtues, and a reign of blood and terror followed, beginning with the burning of two Christian lads, who met their death with songs of praise, and were the first martyrs to the faith in Uganda. The storm of persecution sent its full force in October 1885, when news reached the king that white men had come by the Messe route and were entering Uganda by the back door. Orders were sent to kill the whole party. Prevented from leaving the court, Asha McKay awaited in dread suspense, which gave way to despair when news of Bishop Hannington's death was confirmed. In the months that followed, lives of missionaries and converts were in constant danger. Still, the gospel spread, and young men came daily to the mission house for translated copies. In May 1886, 30 of the missionaries' faithful converts were slowly burned alive. McKay was now anxious to get out of the country, but was refused permission to leave. New missionaries with presents were to bot his escape, but he would not write for men to come to Uganda in the disturbed condition of affairs, so bravely stayed on, even after he unselfishly obtained leave for Ash to go. Alone, weary in soul and body, his life in imminent danger, McKay worked early and late in translating and printing the scriptures. News of the Imen Pasha expedition reached the king, and warned by French priests that Stanley and McKay would put their heads together to eat the country, Mawanga decided that McKay must leave Uganda. Arranging that Mr. Gordon should come to care for the converts, who were only comforted by his assurances that he was but going to the south of the lake, McKay turned away from the country, where he had spent nine eventful years, years of deep experiences, of toil and privations, years that had silvered his hair and calmed the restless impulses of his youth. But his watchword was unchanged, Africa for Christ. After much weary wandering, McKay fell in with a friendly chief in the land Usambrio, and here, single-handed and alone, he began the great work of building a mission station. A band of five headed by Bishop Parker, and including his old friend and fellow worker Ash, soon came to cheer his lonely life. A few happy weeks together, then Bishop Parker and Mr. Blackburn died of fever. Mr. Walker went to Uganda. Mr. Ash was compelled to return home on account of bad health. And McKay was again alone. And again, this all-around missionary set himself to the work of teaching, translating, printing, binding, doctoring, and building. And in the midst of these many and arduous labors, he found time to give to the world practical suggestions, now being carried out. Stations all over Uganda, and a railway from the coast to the lake. In September 1889, Stanley visited McKay on his return to the coast, and gives with unstinted praise an account of the mission station. With its clay-built house, garnished with missionary pictures, and shelves filled with choice, useful books, its hospitable table with wholesome food, homemade bread and coffee, the mission school of neat, well-mannered boys, a launch's boiler, and a canoe under construction, saw pits and cattle fold, all the work of the best missionary since Livingston. Stanley and his party urged McKay to join the homeward expedition, but with characteristic fidelity, he refused to leave till someone came to take his place. European platforms and royal receptions were never his, but February 8, 1890, his tireless energy rested, and the title deeds of his labor were recorded in divine presence upon the brow of every converted person in Uganda. I just want to wrap it up and finish by saying I apologize. I know my Ugandan pronunciations were very bad. I did go and try to look up some of the names. I, I thought I had them right. But the others popped up as I was reading. I'm like, oh no, I missed that one. Uh, so I do apologize about the uh, pronunciation there. Did the best I can. But I just want to wrap up with one with one final thought. 
about Alexander McKay. So we read about all of his years of education, how he learned engineering, mathematics. He did work in that field before he went to the mission field. But yet we see the reading towards the end where the chief, the person in charge is like, hey, I want my people to come and learn from you. I want them to learn how to build these huts. I'm going to give you 20 acres of land to build on so that you can, you know, you have a really good way of constructing things. I want you to build on those structures on this piece of land. Um, people want, you know, watching him as he was building and working. And he was able to, to do printing. He was able to do some doctoring. Uh, he had all these skills. He knew how to do a lot of things. We read also of him teaching, which is you know, one of the main things that a missionary is supposed to do is to go and teach. But I think we've, we've gotten so heavily emphasized on the teaching part, which is it's so important. In When I, I was in West Africa about 10 years ago now, you had to know how to address people who had already learned from the Catholic Church, who'd already, or maybe even were, former Muslims, and how to deal with doctrinal questions from the Pentecostal Church, which were also in that area. So you have to be well grounded in the Word so that you can explain why this is right, why this is wrong. That's so important. But look at the open doors that Alexander McKay had because of his mathematical ability, his, his engineering abilities, that, I think, is something that we've forgotten. That those skills, those talents we have, that uh, mind that he had that was able to understand those things and be able to teach those skills and that trade is so important. Sometimes these practical skills, knowing how to work on vehicles, knowing how to repair plumbing, knowing how to uh, teach and coach a sport, those are important as well because they open up doors that normally wouldn't be open. It just opens another avenue for you to be able to reach people. If someone's broken down on the side of the road, you can maybe help them. If someone's plumbing breaks, you're like, hey, I, I can help you get a temporary fix on, on your situation. You know, sports camps and like clinics are, I, I know, a, a popular way of reaching out to young people, teaching them about a sport, about the rules. Um, and through that, you can do so much teaching about the Bible, how we are one, one body. A team is one body. You have to work together in order to make a point, in order to score a goal. And that's so important. So what I want to, what I want to say, I guess, is that if you're thinking about the mission, going to the mission field, or if you are um, talking to someone, know someone who, a young person especially, who's wanting to go, encourage them to look at the skill sets that they have and expand on that, but encourage them to use the skills that God has given them. Alexander McKay did that. He didn't say, oh, I'm an engineer. I can't go to the mission field because I'm not a preacher. No, he could still go. He could still go. He could still work. He could still teach people, even though engineering and mechanical things were more his skill set rather than being a preacher. He could still go and be of use. So don't discourage someone if they're interested if they want to, if they feel God's calling them to go to the mission field, don't discourage them from pursuing that. Encourage them to learn the Bible, learn the skill that they have, and um, see how God uses them. Well, thank you so much for listening to the God's Peculiar People podcast. We will talk to you again next week.